I have never felt more at home than with complete strangers in, in, in these remote places. I have felt more at home. I felt more love sometimes even than uh, my family back in Turks and Caicos. And that's because they have the strength of showing their vulnerability. They have the strength of Ubuntu, of showing community. They're not afraid to, to really express how they truly feel. Nothing is hidden. And we in the West are completely afraid. We're so afraid of everything. And that's why we've created so many borders and walls and rules and laws and all these different things, because we don't believe that we can handle them. And unfortunately we don't. But over there, there's this like common sense of law without writing it. There's this common sense of beauty. There's this common sense of understanding. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Rome from Home podcast. This is the podcast where we interview some of the world's most interesting, knowledgeable, and iconic explorers, athletes, scientists, and experts from the world of outdoor adventure and how they live lives of purpose. Purpose meaning how they cultivate their relationship with their environment, the earth, how they cultivate the community with others, and how they ultimately find inspiration and fulfillment in themselves. This is season two of the Rome from Home podcast, and we have some really exciting news. Adventure Activist has come on for this season to support us for the next 12 episodes with a very clear vision and a lineup that will be designed to promote action and ignite change for the better. And in particular, this season, we are with the founder of Adventure Activist, our co-host, Dr. Terry O'Connor. And with his help, we're going to be looking carefully at this concept of effective altruism and who is really doing the work that is leading to better outcomes in some of these causes. So we really want to provide you, dear listener, with the tools and resources to get out, get up off the couch, stand up and take a stance on social and environmental issues that are hindering our world from becoming a more just and beautiful place. Terry, He's a medical doctor and an ER doc. Terry was a climber and an adventurer, and that inspired him to get into medicine. And his work as an ER doc has inspired his work to be and to become the founder of Venture Activist, which is focused on the SDD goals of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so with that, what's up, Terry? Hey, everybody. Terry here. Yeah, CJ. Uh you know, I think we've joined forces here because we believe that those who are privileged to expand their horizons as travelers and explorers really do bear intimate witness to the threats to our world and are really uniquely positioned and motivated to serve in return. So we really want this season to be an educational space uh, for our listeners, which presents the foundational knowledge and tools for making positive change and we want to share our network of subject matter experts in really diverse areas of expertise, including health, education, philanthropy, peace, justice, conservation, climate, and more. Oh, we're excited to have you, Terry, and to, to team up with Adventure Activists and you in particular. We were brought together by our mutual friend and board member at Adventure Activists, Rebecca Rush. Just amazing opportunity for us to really dive into some of this. And you and I are learning about this as we go. You're teaching me. Some of our guests are teaching us collectively. Uh, and in speaking of our other co-host, Corey Richards, who was my co-host throughout the entire first season, the first 24 episodes, he will also be joining us for a lot of these episodes. He's sort of in and out, depending on if he's in the Himalaya, if he's training, he has a busy life as a photographer, working photographer and athlete. 
And he brings an awesome perspective as someone who's also trying to figure this stuff out. I mean, you feel that in some of the episodes, Terry, you've noted that Corey's curiosity on this, I think is going to be really helpful for the audience. Oh, absolutely. He's had some great reflections uh, so far, but I really do enjoy learning from our guests and their process and figuring out how they want to best serve and give back uh, to the world. And uh, I'm, I'm really curious uh, who we got up next. Today, you're hearing from Mario Rigby. Incredibly excited to have Mario on the show today. He's an eco-explorer and an educator. He's also known, maybe you've heard of him, as the man who walked sort of tip to top the length of Africa. That's from Cape Town, way down south, all the way to Cairo in Egypt. He also did some kayaking along the way. He had a lot of adventure, which he shares through this episode. Super entertaining from that perspective of how he went from literally his couch and making this decision to do this trip and how he connected with communities along the way and to share their stories that ultimately, and one of the things I thought was, was so cool, Terry, is how he explained that he was the one that was getting educated through this entire journey where, you know, sometimes it feels like people go on these missions and they're trying to, from the Western world and bring some sort of benefit to the, to a, a, these countries in Africa. And yet really what he came across with was that it was this whole opening of knowledge for him by taking this journey and connecting with the people and the environment. And, that's helped him come to this place of purpose. And he really describes that in this episode where he is a big advocate now for inclusion and diversity in the outdoors. And he really, I thought one of the most amazing parts of the episode is when he connected that need for diversity in the outdoors and the need for underrepresented communities to be better included and how that could really unlock what is perhaps his even larger goal, which is sustainability and in one way or another supporting the earth, if you will. Yeah. And I, I think you nailed it. What was really so intriguing to me in this conversation was really how he focused, how much he had to learn uh, from this this trip across Africa. And, um, and he'll say over and over again how important a sense of purpose is in his life. And what's really interesting about Mario is he, you know, he came as a background as an athlete and a sprinter and a very successful competitive sprinter. Uh, competing uh, against the likes of Usain Bolt outside of where he grew up in Turks and Caicos and taking that focus purpose and then having to give that life up, which he'll explain here, and then totally switching that sense of purpose instead of being focused on this, this you know achievement goal to his purpose really being to immerse in a different culture and just listen and learn and um, really was open to allow that experience to mold his sense of purpose going forward, which uh, addresses what you've talked about, right? And, and inclusion and diversity in the outdoors and sustainable forms of travel. And I think it's just really uh, admirable, this absolute commitment to uncertainty, right? It's like the spirit of adventure uh, that led to those discoveries. So a uh, really cool journey. To hear about. Yeah, I love this conversation. It went too fast as it always does. An hour is tough to get all of this sort of packed into, but we learn about Mario's background. We learn about what he's doing next, which is really cool and enjoy. We'll see you on the other side.
So my name is Mario Rigby and uh, I'm an eco-explorer. So I essentially call myself that because I like to push the boundaries of human-powered adventures and I show awareness in the importance in sustainable travel development, like travel countries, developments, also sustainability in tourism and anything else to do with that, especially in adventure as well. My goal is to essentially help shift the mindset from feeling disconnected to making people feel like they're connected with everything that's going on in the world. I do that through storytelling and I go around places that are very hard to get to and try to uplift those people's stories and share that with the masses as best as I possibly can. Mario, what really intrigued me as I started looking at some of your previous work and, and some of the common threads about your life getting to the point of what you're doing now is um, you've expressed over and over again that you've very much wanted to live a, a purpose-driven life. You know, And I think, I think that that sentiment resonates with a lot of people. What's really interesting about personal story, though, in someone's personal history is that sense of purpose changes quite a bit as we grow up and uh, sometimes unexpectedly. To try to understand a little bit of your background and where you came from and now how you're motivated to do what you're doing now, it's interesting for me to highlight and maybe have you tell a little people your background of where you grew up and then kind of what I saw as the first defining purpose as a young man and, and being an athlete and a very competitive athlete competing against some of the world's best. I think I heard Usain Bolt's name come across that and then having to transition from that purpose to a very different purpose that you're on and track on right now. So could you maybe just share with us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up, and then kind of those initial phases as, as exploring a purpose as an athlete? Um, so I was born in the Turks and Caicos Islands and uh, on a tiny little island called Grand Turk, no more than two or 3,000 people at the time. And it's actually, Grand Turk is, is quite a historical place because that's where the salt slave plantation uh, used to take place. Also, what's quite uh, key about Grand Turk, that tiny little island where I was born in, is that Christopher Columbus has been thought to have actually landed there first than any other island. Like there's a dispute over which island he actually came to first, but he actually ended up living in Grand Turk for quite some time. And um, I forgot the name of the astronaut, but it was the first astronaut that's orbited around the Earth who actually landed also in Grand Turk. So Grand Turk is one of those places where explorers love to be. I guess in a way I've connected the two and I thought, hmm, maybe there's something about this place that attracts explorers or attracts really um, interesting and curious people. From an early age, actually, uh, after the age of one, I moved to Germany. I lived there for about 10 years and there I learned German. That's my first language, my first kind of cultural experience. And then I moved back to the Turks and Caicos Islands, where I then actually, you know, competed in track and field very competitively and uh, quickly became one of the top athletes there. And you, you had mentioned, uh, you know, had I run against Usain Bolt? Yeah, I actually used to compete in the 400 meters back in the day during Carifta times, which is a huge Caribbean track and field championships. In fact, anyone there that um, wins a race ends up becoming some kind of world record holder or number one sprinter in the world. And Usain Bolt was one of those guys and we used to compete in the 400 meters until he retired the 400 and, and stuck with the, the 102. Throughout my entire life, I've had this kind of very purposeful driven drive to succeed at the highest possible level. And in track and field is one of those sports where 
the the margin for error is, is is incredibly slim. You know, kind of like if you make one tiny mistake, then that could cost your entire season, your entire year, or the Olympic qualifications. Which uh, unfortunately, I, I've never had the fortune to compete in. And I think because of that, because I was never able to compete at that level, at the highest possible level, which I thought, I felt that there was a sense of purpose that was missing inside of me. And uh, you know, during that time is when I moved from Turks and Caicos, living there for six years, and then moved to Canada, where I essentially lived the rest of my life and where I live、uh, currently. So I've had this like really beautiful cocktail of different cultures and experiences. That kind of enveloped an individual that understood the world in very malleable ways. There was never one way to be. There was never a structured kind of sense of culture that I that I had. And my parents really、uh, encouraged me to kind of pick up any culture that I wanted to, and、uh, they really encouraged me to learn about other cultures, other religions, and and so on. And I remember, like on weekends, we used to watch Discovery Channel. So that was like really highlight point of our time where we were really enthralled with nature, with how humanity is connected. And I think all those things leading up kind of led me to who I am today and what kind of explorer I am. And you know, pushing the boundaries. I think track and field allowed me to push the boundaries in physical、uh, endeavors, such as walking the length of Africa, which you know, which is twelve thousand kilometers. Or cycling across North America,、um, kayaking across two of the Great Lakes, and so on and so on. And you know, I feel like I have so much more room to do so much more, and I'm just kind of diving into this adventure world, into this exploration world, and、uh, it's just exciting. And you know, I feel like a young kid. Although a lot of people say, like, why did you start so late? And you know, the answer is、uh, sometimes the path finds you at a different time. Yeah. Get asked that you get asked why you started doing these expeditions, sort of like how old are you, Mario? Sorry. Yeah, no worries. I'm about 35 right now. I started when I was 29. I started planning my expeditions, and on my 30th birthday is when my mom bought me my first gift, which was a flight ticket to Cape Town, which is where I began my expedition. And that、hmm. was、uh, 2018. You you started that, and it took you two two and a half years. Yeah, I started in 2015. <laughs> so, oh, you finished. So you you sort of you finished in yeah, 2018. I finished in 2018. Yeah. Got it. Yeah.、Okay. And ever yeah, since then, I've、uh, I've just kind of constantly kept doing a big adventure or an expedition until yeah, until now. It's amazing. A two and a half year walk. That's that <laughs> is, as I said earlier. That's a, that's definitely action. And you walked us through some of the progression to get to that point. What was the process of if there was a moment where you said, "That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk from Cape Town to Egypt." And did you know how long it was going to take? Did you did you make the decision before you did the research? Did you do the research? Like, how did you move from again off the couch to doing something of that magnitude as a sort of a compass for our listeners? It's funny because I actually thought of the idea, like the exact idea, on the couch while I was sitting down, and I was <laughs> okay. Oh, no. I was I was looking, <laughs> I was looking at my TV, which was blank at the time, and I thought to myself, "What am I doing? Why am I enclosed in this box? And why am I not living my life to the fullest possible way that I can? And what is the ultimate possible thing that I could do?" And I felt like 
I was on a crossroad, you know, I was going through a really bad time at 29. I, you know, I was injured from track and field. I couldn't compete anymore. I was a successful, you know, sport conditioning coach and personal trainer, but it just wasn't enough to kind of uplift me. And I had also gone um, out of a long-term relationship. So a lot of things just kind of went uh, south there. And, you know, I had even thought about taking my life at one point. It was really a, a cruel time for me, I would say emotionally. And, um, you know, I, I had two options. I was either going to say, I'm going to keep living this miserable life, but I know that I, I wouldn't, you know, sustain it because at one point, what's the purpose of living this kind of life? So I felt personally for myself, if I didn't find a purpose quickly, then things are going to end very tragic. And so I started doing the research. I said, you know what, let me love myself enough to to, to find out what it is that I truly love to do. What is What are the things that, that really spark my interest, my passion? And I started to put it together. And I thought, okay, cool. I love adventure. I love traveling around the world. And I love going to places that are very unique and hard to, very hard to reach. And I love mixing that up with real hard physical endeavors. And, and that's where my track and field background came from. I just like pushing my body to the limit. And I remember that when I was a kid, my brother and I, we would watch a show called The Black Panther. And I think very few people know about this, but I remember when it came out, it had only like 2,500 to 5,000 maybe people who liked who liked it on YouTube, which was crazy to me. So the Black Panther TV series, which aired on BET, Black Entertainment Television, had an episode, I believe it was episode two or three, where T'Challa, before he became the king of Wakanda, he decided to go on a walkabout. He wanted to learn about the culture and the ways of Africa and how he could transform it in a positive way moving into the future. And he felt like the only way to be a leader was to actually go and do this walkabout. So he stepped out and did this walk across Africa, which was to me, one of the most beautiful things that I've seen, because here is a man, a superhero that didn't just want to become a superhero because he was strong and, and he felt like he was entitled. He wanted to be a superhero because he wanted to lead his people in the right direction. And he did the work to get there. And I felt very connected with that. I felt like this is something that in the modern world we're missing big time. We go from high school to university and straight into the workforce, but we don't actually go through like a coming of age ceremonial process. So how can we become confident adults? How can we become confident human beings moving forward? And so I felt like that's kind of what I needed. So I kind of copied that idea a bit. And I said, you know what, let me do an expedition in which I will set up from the most southern tip of Africa and walk all the way to the most northern tip. And I'll mix that up with kayaking, which I did 500 kilometers off in Malawi, just to spice things up. <laughs> and uh, it ended up becoming probably the biggest life lesson I've ever learned. In fact, I believe that my adventures have also taught a lot of people a different side of Africa in which would have never been expressed or shared. So. To me, that's that's kind of what what really drove me to to want to do such an expedition. Wow! Yeah, all right. There's a lot to unpack there, and thanks um, for being totally transparent about that. As you coined it, a crossroads in your life, um, reminiscent of something one of my mentors said is that often our our most poignant insights in life happen at our highest moments of instability and in trying to figure out how mm -hmm. to to compensate and do next and. Um, 
What's really interesting to me when you jumped into effectively this huge commitment in a life of adventure, I mean, I see that you were able to be successful and in this paradigm where there was like micro variables you're trying to control to maximize your performance and find purpose and being the best maybe athlete you could be and having deal with these losses and tragedies, one could see that you could quickly want to latch on and become the best personal trainer you could be and build up your brand and be the most well-known and successful trainer in Toronto. And yet what happened instead at that precipice, at that unstable moment, it's almost like you pivoted. And instead of like controlling these little micro, these little micro things you can control, you decided to pick something that is just replete with total uncertainty and serendipity. I mean, adventure, right? I mean, you stepped into something that you had a a root or a seed that this was kind of an exciting lifestyle, but you just totally went for it. And what's interesting to me is it seemed like when you were talking about the story of the Black Panther is that instead of being goal objective, like, oh, I'm going to tell everybody that I'm, I'm doing this thing. It actually seemed like it was more motivated and just being an exploration of what the world has to offer. In other words, it wasn't like, I'm going to go to Africa and I'm going to walk south to north and then it's going to fix how terrible my life is right now. You just wanted (laughs) to go see how the rest of the world was living. And I I guess I'm just going back to that because why do you think that happened? Like for my, like, it seems like sometimes people are just so clingy to want to have another success when they have a challenge and to try to switch it to just be like, I want to go see how the rest of the world lives yeah. Maybe to make you feel grateful about what you have or to figure out how you're going to be in service. And so how did you or why did you what was most exciting about that objective when you dove into it going forward? And, and maybe it was just that. But I just wanted to riff on that a little bit more. Yeah, you, you said that so well, actually, um, going into the walk across Africa, I uh, which is actually the walk along the length of Africa. But it's just really long to say that. So I always said walk across Africa, but it's actually along the length. But one of the reasons I did it was because I felt like if you're on Earth and, you know, this this planet has so much beautiful things to offer, I wanted to see it in the most authentic possible way. And I wanted to learn from that. And from that, I wanted to be able to share that with people as best I possibly can through the lens of the people who I've met. And so all of those different things kind of came together and made sense. It makes more sense the more I do this, you know. In fact, you're, you're saying this, but while I was doing it, I had no idea if I was going to be successful or not. All I knew is that I'm taking a leap of faith. You know, I called my mom, actually, and I said to her, she was the first person I told, I said, I'm going to walk the length of Africa. And she said uh, nothing for a moment. <laughs> and, um, you know, shortly after she said, you know, everything that you've done in your life has prepared you for this moment to be able to do this and, and, and complete it. And she wasn't saying this as like, oh, because I'm her son. She was saying that because what she's seen me do in the past, being a little explorer on the island, I would always roam around on the island, hike through bushes, I would go camping before I even knew what camping was, before I knew what sustainability was. I was doing all those things before in the most rugged possible way. I didn't even know you could do it as a job. I didn't know you could do it as a profession. And then she said, if you're going to be the first you know, you know, on the on the island, like because you know, we, we take pride in in, in Turks and Caicos and, and our people and what we do. If you're gonna be the first person in Turks and Caicos to do this, I want you to be sure that when you do this and you get hit by a car or something happens to you, make sure that you're the first person in the world to do this on a wheelchair. <laughs> like, you know, so she she really forced me to think about the ultimate possible way to do this, which was 
you can't have an excuse getting out of it. And I knew that going into to this expedition, if I were walking and if I'm tired and if I'm kind of going through a moment, there's no way that I could just stop and say, you know what, I'm going to go back home. I wanted to be in a state of mind and I wanted to also test myself. How far can I go? There were times where I was in the middle of nowhere and there was a, a truck that passed by. And this, there was I remember this moment so well because, you know, at that time it was, it was a really hard day. But this guy, he asked me for a ride. He said, hey, like, are you sure you don't want to ride? Like, there is nothing ahead of us except for like wild elephants. And because there was a wild uh, elephant sanctuary ahead and it was just mud road. And I said, no, I, I got this. And I just I just kept saying this so many times that it just became like second nature for me to just be like, I'm going to always do it the hard way. And it has nothing, it had nothing to do with appeasing anyone. If I did it to appease someone, I probably wouldn't have finished it. I had to do it because I wanted to experience it. And I wanted to know if I'm able and if I'm capable of finishing it myself. So that's, that's kind of what, what got me thinking. That was my, my mentality. What strikes me in that, Mario, is that the, the absolute commitment, you know, the question Terry was sort of about uncertainty to a certain degree, but your absolute commitment to the uncertainty. You, you move from a, a moment of challenge and struggle to a degree into making this decision and with no idea of really what was on the other side of it. How did you reconcile that commitment? You know, your mother helped you there, but when you, you sort of had that moment of, okay, I'm definitely doing this and not knowing what was on the other side, because I think there's the, I guess the question is really about fear. How do you process that fear of uncertainty and still push through it and say, I'm going to commit to, to this two and a half year walk? Yeah, that's- And, and maybe, maybe a follow-up to that, Mario. I imagine there was a time while you were in the thick of it <laughs> when you were having to reconcile some real fear in real time and maybe we're second guessing what you're doing. And might be another way- Oh yeah, those are, always, understand. those are always fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think I applied- my kind of my track and field experience into into my uh, into my expedition as well. So not in terms of conquering fear, but the process in which I I take my thoughts and turn it into like kind of kinetic energy, right? So what I would do is I would break things down into the most basic principles. So let's say I were to think about the distance of Cape Town to Cairo, which is 12,000 kilometers, I would say, okay, I have 12,000 kilometers. I wouldn't really attach my emotions to it. I would start to break down, well, how would that look like? And you just break it down until you have like, you know, you're down to like a minute to an hour to a day, a week, a month, mm -hmm. and so on and so on. And so I apply that with everything. In, in track and field, we apply that to, to sprinting, right? So when you're sprinting, a lot of people think about like someone just running, they're just going at it. But that's the last thing you're doing. You're actually not even running, you're bounding. When you're sprinting, you're bounding. So when you're in um, a very high professional level of, of sprinting, you are conscious of every single movement and you compartmentalize it. But at the same time of compartmentalization, you also connect everything together. So it's like your brain is like split in two and then come together. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, what they do is they, they forget that compartmentalization or they completely compartmentalize it and, don't, and forget to put it together. And I just kind of kept doing that with my thoughts on fear. The biggest example of that is uh, crossing rivers. 
in South Africa along the um, along the garden route. There were dozens of rivers I had to cross. I hated rivers. I hated rivers. I've I've never been in a river before until I had to jump into a river and cross it. That was probably the most fearful thing I've ever experienced. We're talking a 50 meter wide river. That was my first one. And it doesn't seem that long, but if it's, you know, really pulling into the ocean and it just looks like just black water, <laughs> like moving really fast and you can't even really see it moving until you put your hand in it. And then it just feels like something's just slapping your hand away. And you have to now think, how am I going to get across? So getting across is that that overarching goal that I need to do. Now, how do I break it down? And so I started to compartmentalize it. And the more I start to break it down, the more my fear goes away, or at least I'm able to reconcile my fear with the practical thing that I need to do, which would be take off my clothes, wrap a, a, a rope around my waist, tie it to um, an inflatable boat that I had, put my backpack on it, jump into the water, and just try to get across as quickly as humanly possible. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was a decent enough swimmer where I, I could kind of calculate and know how far it would take me to, to, to get across to a certain extent. And there were times where I had near-death experiences uh, crossing rivers where I'd walked for 14, 15 hours one time, and I remember hallucinating getting to a river, and I made a critical error which was I didn't measure or I didn't really think to measure the distance of the water. I just jumped in without even thinking about how deep, what's further down the river, are there crocodiles, are there sharks doing figure eights waiting for fresh fish? And are there sharp rocks in the middle that split the, the river apart, right? Mm -hmm. I remember I just took my backpack, put it over my head and I just walked across for some reason. I don't know, I, that was the weirdest thing. <laughs> um, I was definitely hallucinating thinking I could just walk over this water and I just fell in and I just like, the water just sucked me in. Like it was just like, <laughs> and it took me straight on the water, like just so hard, like just rushed me into the ocean. I could feel the fresh water just like getting hot from the from salt water. I thought definitely I'm I'm dead. This is it. And uh, but instead of feeling sorry for myself, which only lasted for about half, like a split second, I I then applied that compartmentalization uh, process in my head, where I started to okay now new goal, <laughs> new goal is make it out of the water alive, make it, and then go across the river again. So now I had to think okay what do I need to do? And then I heard about all the advice that the local people in the in the past villages would tell me because they knew that there were rivers and they said, okay, if you cross this river, make sure you're doing these things. Let, allow the riptide to take you out, float, put as much air in your lungs, get out there and then let, allow it to bring you back. If you fight against the current, you will always lose. So I did that and I kind of circled back to where I started and I had to do the whole thing over again. But my choice was either to stay outside, to stay on one side of the river and die from hypothermia, or I cross the river again and try to take a chance so I had to take that chance. And, uh, you know, to, to Terry's question, I love that story, Mario. You know, now you're now you're back on the, the same side that you started on. You just had a near-death experience. And, you, you know, <laughs> the back to that idea of, like, now you got to do it all again. And there's no one telling you that you have to do this. 
you're you're intrinsically motivated somehow to despite the fear you know what is your self-talk at that point i mean you just went through it a little bit but now you're soaking wet on the same side of the river again and are you applying that same idea that you're saying okay now i'm going to compartmentalize this down i'm going to keep going even though you might happen to you again you know what what do you say to yourself in that moment so i think i woke up from the from the hallucination <laughs> The water definitely uh, gave me like a, a rinse of that. Going back one more time to the sprint, when you are in the 100 meters and you're about to start and you're in the starting position, the first thing that comes to your mind is actually really nothing. You're just waiting for the sound and then reaction. Then you start to go through the process of what you need to do. You go through your checklist. You're like, okay, head down, drive, elbow back, pump knee up, strike ground, high knee lift, reserve power, push. <laughs> and so I literally do that entire process in my head for uh, that crossing river. When I was in the water, I thought to myself, okay, float atop. Like I just kind of like, just keep it super simple, very basic, absolute essential needs. Thinking about, oh, I'm gonna die or how I'm gonna die is a waste of your brain process in, in a survival situation. And knowing that is the difference between people who would make it across and people who will not. If you're thinking about constantly what are the worst case scenarios and how that could affect you without coming up with solutions, then you're never going to find that solution, right? So mm -hmm. I think about worst case scenarios as well, but not in a, a scare tactic for myself. It doesn't freak me out. I just think mm -hmm. about it in a way that I think, okay, well, how do I overcome this particular obstacle or problem? And that's what takes me through. So going through the steps very calmly in my head, take, you know, making sure I'm breathing, making sure that uh, I think breathing actually techniques are really important for me. There are times where I've run into uh, wild elephants, bull elephants in Mozambique, and these things are the sizes of small apartments. <laughs> and um, this one just kind of came at me with its ears that looked like basically the size of my window. And uh, you just have to take a deep breath and you know you have to do the right thing. You can't just bolt off and run. So there's processes in which you need to do. And of course, knowledge is, is probably also important. Sounds like Before training. You go into, yeah, yeah, essentially, yeah. You've exactly. done a lot of training. You keep coming back to the training that you went through, the repetition and the the discipline and the focus of, of your career as a track star, you know, that it seems like you've been able to apply that so many times to staying focused on the thing that will get you out of it. In, in snow sports and skiing, we sometimes just say, you know, don't look at the tree, look at the space, yeah. right? And if you look at the tree, you hit the tree. So and that's where your no, focus that's, is. That's, yeah. that's exactly it, yeah, that's exactly it. Great story, and it's and obviously on your your YouTube channel and, and many other interviews you've had. I mean, uh, as you can imagine, there's you've probably lived at least 450 of the thousand different ways to die in in Africa over those two and a half years. What's intriguing is certainly your background and this way to compartmentalize has navigated you through a lot of this peril. Uh, but what I find really admirable about you, Mario, is in what you choose to highlight. Yes, you have the capacity to do that. Yes, you had these transformative experiences of <laughs> nearly drowning in a river, nearly dying of dehydration in the desert, uh, being involved in a gunfight, right? And in between rebels forces. And uh, despite all that, what I see that you often like to highlight is not this conquest and ad adversity. It's actually the delight 
and the local people that you engage with and interact with. And Rich really goes back to kind of what the original core concept was in a lot of ways of the exploration. And um, I'm curious in sharing that delight, at some point, did you start to realize you had a unique or a bit of a different platform to try to share with people like the meaning of this journey? Because it's such a classic trope, right? Like that Western guy goes to dangerous third world country and navigates all this peril and succeeds and gets to the other side. Mm -hmm. But what was more interesting, I think, about your story is that you took the time to walk. You're not blasting through these obstacles. You're not just conquesting and you're actually trying to make more meaning of this trip. And it seemed like a lot of that meaning happened in these poignant little vignettes of you with locals. And, And was there kind of a moment where you realize, wow, just connecting with people in a world that's so different from mine is a true delight. And there's actually real value to share. And did you really start to buy in that I've got something special here to share at some point during this trip? Yeah, you know what, that it's so true that all those things did happen, but they were kind of like an ends to an into across Africa, right? And right. those those are those things are going to happen. But that's not my focus. My focus wasn't on, you know, exploiting my tools. And my by my tools, I'm talking about gear and, you know, how I think about the process of, of conquering rivers and whatnot. I do mention it from time to time so that people can understand how I made it across. But the focus was the people. The focus was the you know, indigenous people, the communities there. And that's always been my highlight. And that will never, that it never wavered. And I think one thing that I'm really very good at is like staying razor sharp focus on one thing and uh, not being distracted too much by, you know, all the hoopla that's going on on the side. For me, it was really like, like for instance, getting shot at by the rebels. That was an insane experience. And the reason I got shot at by the rebels was they weren't directly shooting at me. They were uh, firing in my direction because I was mm. with a with a military squad. But the reason that even happened was because I wanted to get really close to the rebel leader. I wanted to understand his mind. I wanted to interview him. I wanted to ask some questions. Mm. And the closer I got to this conflict, the you know, the more real things became. And that's what I and that's what I became in love with. I became in love with realness. I became in love with, well, what really motivates people? And, you know, living in a city, living in Toronto, beautiful city. I love it here and I might always live here, but it is a bubble after all. Mm -hmm. And the realities of the world are not what happens here. The realities of the world is what happens out there. Nature. If we keep producing smog, eventually the reality is going to hit us that we can't breathe anymore. Uh, we can't create these bubbles anymore and they think we're going to survive. And so for me, I wanted to see that in people. I wanted to see, well, what really motivates people to do certain things? All the mineral and the, um, the minerals and the, um, the resources that northern Mozambique has, you know, they export it to Western countries around the world. And that affects how the local people in Africa engage in that process. You know, is it corrupt or is it uh, secure? And why is it corrupt? I wanted to really be there in the, in the source. And I wanted to see the people who are in charge and who have control of the resources that we have that we put in our phones. I wanted to meet the people who, who control how much an iPhone really is. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was really addicted to finding the core truth of human behavior and all of that. And I think Africa is one of those places where, you know, those answers will come to you. And uh, if you stick around long enough and if you interact with enough people, 
that will definitely surface. And it surfaced multiple uh, ways in so many different ways. But what I found that was a common trend was how people in East, in East Africa interacted with each other and, and interacted with strangers. And then you can start start to see like the, the colonization, um, how that sociologically affected the people there. And I was just very curious about how people would also react to just me being a black man in Africa. Would they celebrate me or would they refuse me? Would they not care? I, I was really curious about that personally. So I had this like kind of personal attachment in that sense. But then I had like a more like a research attachment as well. That's kind of what I wanted to do. Gosh, you, you, you hit on a couple of things. One thing that resonated with me is, is you were trying to understand what the people you were encountering, what they, what they wanted. And it, it struck me, it was um, your journey reminded me of another journey by Paul Salopek, who's a journalist, the out of Eden walk. He's a National Geographic explorer and journalist. And, and he intentionally is also very much like you did, has been doing a walking tour from you know the cradle of civilization throughout the world and is continuing ongoing right now. And he very intentionally wanted to slow down to be able to make meaning of the human interactions along his way. What really struck him is that there was a very commonality in all these stories. One story bled into another, I think was his words he used. It seemed like you struck on an insight that the people there, it seemed like you have a, a very sympathetic sense of, of what they want and what they needed. And it was very understandable. And I think mm. for people that don't put themselves into a country like Mozambique or have traveled to the third world, we have our preconceived notions about the abject poverty and the desperation and the neediness and the, the wanting to take advantage of the Western world. But it seems like you were able to relate to very simple, understandable needs that they had and wanting to connect with that and be in service to that. You mentioned, you know, travel. I mean, did you feel like, oh, I, I just met this wonderful young kid and all he wants to do is, uh, is have fun, be safe, play uh, football in the street with his friends. And part of what I need to do to make sure that he still has the security to do that is to make sure that his family not only has an income, but I'm also being a good steward of consumption, so to speak, because I'm part of the process that may have had them cut down all these trees in the forest and you know, yeah. degraded their environment. And I guess, are there any stories that you can relate to in making these relationships with people, understanding what they want, and then realizing kind of your level of personal responsibility Mm -hmm. to be of service to them I man because it seems like because of this africa trip like it seems like you you're a very purpose-driven purpose person and you have this new purpose that i want to get into in regards to sustainability and travel were there some really poignant moments on this trip where like oh man i'm i'm potentially part of the problem here and this is what i need to do for these people because they simply just they just want to have joy they just want to be happy yeah um, i i came into africa thinking that i could help a lot being a western person you're taught that we're in the top of the civilization. We're, we're the smartest and we are here to help them. And I learned very quickly that I was wrong. Um, I learned that in rural parts of Africa, the place, the place that I've been into, I've visited over 130 different uh, remote tribes throughout Africa. And what I've learned was that, no, they're content and very happy. That they are, you know, there was this uh, guy that I met in Mozambique in this, uh, in this small town. I took a break there overnight and um, he was the only English speaking individual. He was actually an English teacher for high school. And, um, you know, he came to meet me because usually what I would do when I walk into a village or a town, I just sit in the bar, grab a beer. And when you do that, it disarms people. They feel like, oh, okay, this, you, 
approachable. So he came up to me and, and, you know, he was very curious about my life and how is it on the other side of the world? You know, these people are very curious about how we're living. And every time I explain the story to hundreds, like maybe thousands of people that I've met along the way, they always have to say, oh my God, they have to like, I feel sorry for you kind of, because they said, what about the happiness? What about your community? Why are there poor people? <laughs> because a lot of them, especially in, in, in these rural places, they've been living like this for thousands of years. That's, that's, they're in a good place. They're happy. Um, I have never felt more at home than with complete strangers in, in, in these remote places. I have felt more at home. I felt more love sometimes even than uh, my family back in Turks and Caicos. And that's because they have the strength of showing their vulnerability. They have the strength of Ubuntu, of showing community. They're not afraid to, to really express how they truly feel. Nothing is hidden. And we in the West are completely afraid. We're so afraid of everything. And that's why we've created so many borders and walls and rules and laws and all these different things, because we don't believe that we can handle them. And unfortunately we don't. But over there, there's this like common sense of law without writing it. There's this common sense of beauty. There's this common sense of understanding. And yes, there are smaller communities, but you start to see that throughout Africa, even in the bigger cities, their interactions are very natural because there aren't any walls that anyone is trying to hide. No one is, you know, <laughs> if someone doesn't like you, you'll know. If someone really likes you, you'll really know. So it's, it's one of those things, you know, that I didn't have when I went to Africa. And I felt like I think that is the most important thing in life. I don't think going to Mars or doing all those things are the most important. I love them and I'm a true advocate of uh, future technologies and sustain sustainable future technologies and, and going to Mars. But I think we have to be able to understand and create a community that really promotes the sustainability of humanity in the future on our planet. And I think everything in my life that I want to do now, you know, has to do with me learning how to share that story with the masses so that they can understand that. And if that means having a bigger platform, then so be it. And I think Africa has taught me more than I could teach it. And I think as a Western person, we go to Africa and we don't have that sense. We usually go there thinking, oh, I'm going to build a school. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You know, a, a funny question that someone asked me in Malawi was, you know, Mario, uh, you are so clever. You are so smart. All the people over there, you know, the, the degrees and the university education, how come it is affecting us? Why are we dying? Why are, why can I get any more food from the crops? If you are doing all of these things and the earth will disappear, uh, what is the purpose? <laughs> and, and so from that experience, that just, just that alone, eliminated everything that I thought like, okay, I could help. No, I said, no, I need to reevaluate the way that I think fundamentally about how I want to participate um, in humanity on earth. And I wanted to become more of a participant that wanted to, to, to be a part of the sustainable approach to it, as opposed to being a burden to the planet, being a burden to wildlife, being a burden to other people that didn't ask for this. You know, I, I do play as an I do play as an advocate for more inclusion and sustainability. And the reason 
you know, I, I say more inclusion. I, I think we're going to go into that topic later, but um, this has to do with the sustainability aspect of it. The reason we want to have more inclusion is because the vast majority of the people in the world are not really strategically thinking about sustainability because they've never had to in the past. We have to. They don't. A lot of uh, societies in Africa will start from scratch. They will be living in the third and fourth industrial revolution before we will in North America. So they will be living it while we are, you know, scrambling for ways to save money and, and maybe not invest in solar energy and not ban single-use plastics. We should be the first ones who should be doing that. So who, who really is right and wrong? And so, of course, I always say that there are parts of our civilization in which are very important, and that is some technical aspects of it. But when it comes to how we live as humans, I think we can learn a lot from Africa. And that's what I came out of Africa with. That was beautiful, <laughs> Mario. <laughs> yeah, I really like a totally uh, wonderful answer and to share your experience with those stories and how, it, how that experience really taught you and brought to, you to where you are now. Uh, I think we can learn a lot from your story. And I think it's a good transition into what you have coming up because you're taking this idea of purpose and the purpose that you learned through your experience. And, and as you said, now you're building a platform and you have an upcoming uh, challenge that you've outlined for yourself. Maybe you can walk us through that a little bit and how it relates to this, this continued purpose of, of sustainability and uh, sustainable travel and inclusion also you've taken out from all these experiences and, and that that's sort of shaping to be your your purpose at this stage and how you're going to do that with this next expedition. Yeah, 100%. So the next expedition coming up, which is actually April 30th, is called the Caicos Challenge. The Caicos Challenge to me is probably an expedition that I've always wanted to do as a kid, which was to traverse the entire length of the Turks and Caicos Islands. So we're talking eight islands and a bunch of different little keys so Turks and Caicos Islands is such a tiny little place, a population of 40 plus thousand people, and our tourism can reach anywhere from 100,000 people. So we have to be very cautious about how many people we let on and what they're allowed to do on the islands because we, we live on a very fragile ecosystem, particularly the marine life. And so the Caicos challenge is to traverse the islands in a way that has never been done before. And that's just to promote it, get eyes on it, but also to raise money for the Coral Reef Fund, the Turks and Caicos Reef Fund, which is probably one of the most important things that, uh, or charities that, that that can actually be in Turks and Caicos Islands. And you can go on my website to actually learn more about that on uh, myreaky.com. But the reason we're raising money for the Turks and Caicos Reef Fund is because they are nursing corals in one of the largest reef systems in the world which is in Turks and Caicos Island. And without the corals, you don't have the fish. Without the fish, you don't have the corals, you don't have the big fish, then the marine life kind of like collapses. And this is like kind of looking at it holistically. If that happens, then the livelihoods of the local people, but also the, the wildlife, we lose our main source of food. We lose our main source of purpose. And so I think that Turks and Caicos Islands is actually a perfect example, as a micro example of what, what is happening to the whole world. And we can use a lot of great examples here to demonstrate how effective sustainable uh, development and practices can be. Now, the, the Turks and Caicos Reef Fund is also 
raising money to to educate young local kids, particularly marginalized youth, to learn how to swim and to dive and to learn about the marine life so that they can become custodians themselves of the Turks and Caicos Islands instead of having foreign people come in. Now, to me, this is the best form of sustainability is to get the local people to understand and learn and be able to share it amongst themselves. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a grueling six-day expedition in which I will uh, swim, kayak, hike, run, and cycle. I think by May 4th, I'll be complete. And throughout this, we'll be filming as well. And through this film, we're going to be showing the, obviously the beauty, the, the flora and fauna of the Turks and Caicos Islands, and also educating people at the same time. And I think this is, uh, this is going to be such a beautiful expedition. Now, on top of all of that, we're creating a community challenge in which people can, from around the world can actually join in real time. And we've partnered with, um, you know, brands like Arcteryx, Revo Glasses, um, Sunglasses, PNHC Kayaks, and Warner Pedals. There are a number of people who are, who are partners with us. And, you know, we'll be doing giveaway prizes for people who will join the community challenge and who can participate from around the world while they are in lockdown or, you know, during COVID times, I know that people can come out and enjoy an adventure in, in which I'm about to enjoy it. And so I feel like this is one of the best way to contribute back to people who are actually watching. And I think that is to get people actually involved, physically involved in the expedition. So we're doing, um, we're doing virtual community challenges where if I do a 30 minute, a 30 kilometer run, then we challenge people from around the world to do 30 kilometer runs too, and they can win prizes that way. From what you've learned in, in, in Africa now with this next adventure trip that you have lined up back at home, uh, what do you see is kind of your dream? I, I, I see what's really interesting about you is, is you're, you've been motivated by this formative experience. And so much of what we talk about, you know, at our nonprofit, the Venture Activists here at Rome is that in a lot of ways, you know, these adventures we take in the end, they're not so much about what they say about who we are as a person, what we succeeded about, but who we are about to become. And certainly your experiences with indigenous cultures has motivated you to become someone different. And it seems to me that you're, you're right now trying to put the pieces together of advocating for, you know, diversity and inclusion uh, within this, this space, but also sustainability as a way, to, I guess, to be a good steward of our use of the planet. And some people we interview have, are, are well along in their way of establishing their own nonprofit. You know, maybe they've already done many of these trips uh, and expeditions and have fundraised for a number of different other uh, nonprofits that are addressing the UN sustainable development goals or climate change or cleaning up oceans. With your life and with your experience, where where do you see yourself going? Like, who do you think Mario Rigby is going to become and what do you need to be successful in that going forward? Well, first of all, let me explain to you why diversity and inclusion is so important. That'd be um, great because I was going to follow up with that already. So please. <laughs> diversity and inclusion is incredibly important because the more people we have in the outdoors, the more people we have learning and being involved in the environment and nature, the more people will actually come together to help with what's happening on earth. We cannot leave this to a small group of people with a niche uh, group of people who are focusing on this problem. It's too big, it's the entire world. We have 7.5, more than 7.5 billion people on the planet. And I believe that 
a majority of them might not know what's going on or might not know what they can do to help make the planet more sustainable or make humans on the planet more sustainable. And so my approach to sustainability is to get as many people involved as possible, make as many people interested in um, understanding where they come from. And when I say where they come from, I'm talking about from the earth. I'm talking about the same minerals and parts of your body is in the earth. And so the more empathetic we are with that, I think the better chance we have of, of creating um, a, a brighter future for humanity. And there are certain places in the world where they have great leaders, great leaders in cities and in, in countries where, you know, they've really motivated the people to understand how important it is to be a part of everything. But if you don't have marginalized communities or people who just don't have access to this information, if you can access them, then all of a sudden we've just unleashed the, the entire planet is now interested in, in working together as a community to make sure that we're going to live through this and our children's children's children will live through this. And a lot of indigenous communities in, uh, in North America, you know, that's how they've always done it. They've looked at, well, what are the next five or seven generations of people? How are they going to live? And, and what I love about how they've actually created a culture was that they have attached personal meaning and names to inanimate objects, to rocks, to trees. They would name them spirit names because the young kids would then approach these objects with more respect because there's some kind of tie. There's a, there's a connection somehow. But what we've done is we've completely, we're going back to this word compartmentalize, but then we've forgotten to connect it again. And so what I'm trying to do is create that reconnection to create that empathetic understanding of if I break this entire mountain, then that could collapse an entire ecosystem. That's my ultimate focus. And my ultimate focus is try to is try to tell that story and through many different ways in which can reach as many people as possible. And that can look so many different ways. I've actually learned how to be a videographer. The last three years, I've gone through this exponential learning curve of learning how to um, rock climb, learning how to sea kayak, in fact, all these different things. You know, I, I've never even really done a biking tour before until I went across North America, which was, uh, which took me about a couple of months. And I went, I've only had one accident throughout that entire experience, which was, uh, you know, it wasn't even that my fault, but still. <laughs> um, so, you know, as I'm doing this, I'm, I'm literally learning as much as possible. And I think that's actually putting me in a unique position. And that position is that I'm coming at it from a different lens. I'm coming at it from a different perspective, a different point of view. I'm not coming from a community of people who've been there and they're, you know, already rising. I think that's my unique approach in a sense. And um, I'd like to reach out to as many people to inspire them and to have them empathize with, I, I believe, what's really important on planet Earth. I love the connection that you make Mario, and that that you've you've sort of personified and and put into action, which is this this mission and purpose of sustainability and unlocking the potential of underrepresented communities in terms of the awareness and moving them to action 
Uh, I mean, it's a as you said that you keep creating this metaphor of the two sides moving in parallel to come together, and uh, that really it's a it's a great analogy or you know sort of almost a, a poem in terms of how it can really come together and appreciate what what you're doing. And I would encourage our listeners to go to MarioRigby.com. It's coming up. This this episode is going to release right before Mario starts on April 30th, 2021, uh, on his Caicos expedition. And you can go to his website. You can sign up for his newsletter. If you're a Strava user, you can participate uh, via Strava, right, uh, in terms of the challenge that you've you've outlined. Uh, so it's really, you know, our mission with the podcast is to move people from awareness to action. You've outlined how you're doing that beautifully at, and jumping on Strava and and getting alongside you, if you will, while you're out there cranking and grinding through it. I think that will give people something to sink their teeth into on this and, and help the cause. Certainly the protection of coral reefs, which we're trying to fund through this. I've had some conversations with my five-year-old about coral reefs. Uh, this is probably not politically correct, but he's like, Donald Trump hates coral reefs. <laughs> it's a little bit of a stretch, my, you know, son, but sort of, yeah, you know. <laughs> so I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love the, the, you know, using the micro ecosystem around Caicos and, and, you know, as a, again, as a, as an example of the larger picture and how important those ecosystems are. I, I think uh, I, again, I re- recommend everybody go to MarioRigby.com and, and look at what Mario's done and what he's about to do uh, and get involved. And if you go to Rome's Instagram, you know, Mario, we're definitely going to be pointing at what you're doing while you're out there making it happen. So uh, and want to respect your time too. I thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And I don't know, Terry, if you have any last thoughts before we let Mario go, but uh, really appreciate your time, Mario. Terry? Yeah, no, Mario, just uh, in case there's anything else you wanted to say, make sure we didn't miss anything before we sign off here. Yeah, no, um, I think uh, I said all that I needed to say for now. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Terry, uh, Chris, I really appreciate it. And yeah, I've, yeah. also I'm on Instagram as well. So I kind of use that platform quite heavily. And I find that that's the quickest, easiest way to reach out to people as well. Well, we really appreciate your time. And I really appreciate your transparency about your process and your journey. I think many people are so focused on the product and what they're delivering, what they're doing. But I think yours has been a journey of just being very curious and being kind and what's evolved out of that exploration and kindness and curiosity. And um and I'm really excited to see what, what you're capable of doing going forward. So thanks so much and enjoy the journey. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. That was awesome. What an amazing guy. Uh, you know, I was excited to go into the conversation Uh, just based on his background, but hearing directly from him and the emotion and the absolute genuine, I guess, authenticity, the words overused sometimes, but, you know, his approach and, and his journey was just, I found myself totally enthralled by the stories that he was telling throughout the episode. So I I hope you did as well. Yeah. And I, I I think, uh, you know, his journey is not done, right? I mean, I think what's interesting about Mario's story is uh, some of the other guests have 
they have their own foundation. They have their own nonprofit. Uh, there's a, a focused agenda going forward, but uh, I see Mario still on a process of discovery. I mean, he's still uh, on this commitment to a little bit uncertainty and adventure, and, and it's really going to be exciting to follow him and see what happens ahead uh, for Mario in the future. Totally. It feels like he is truly just getting started. Yeah. Uh, even as he said to us that he was a late bloomer on this, it, he, he's got so much in front of him. This next journey, this expedition that he's starting just in a few days, if you're picking this up, we're releasing this in late April of 2021. And April 30th, 2021 is when he starts his next expedition, which you can follow along as he runs, swims, hikes, kayaks, and cycles all through Turks and Caicos, really to raise money for the Turks and Caicos refund, which is raising some support to help create a sustainable future for the islands. In particular, he talks a lot about the coral reefs and the, the ecosystem there, which uh, I find particularly important as a diver, if you've seen those ecosystems and seen the difference between a live reef and a dead reef and the, the sort of the stark reality of that. Um, that's another whole subject, but please go and, and check out what he's doing at MarioRigby.com. You can follow him on his Instagram as well, at MarioRigby. If you liked today's episode, you can help us out by subscribing and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or any place that you get your podcasts. You can find us on social media at Rome and at The Adventure Activists. You can find me on Instagram at, at CJ Rome and Terry is at C Terry Go. That's S E E. And Corey is at Corey Richards. For resources and ways to get involved, go to romemedia.com for this episode's show notes and all the other stuff. And special thanks to our producer, Healy Cruz. This episode of Rum From Home is brought to you by Adventure Activists. Adventure Activists is a nonprofit platform which produces unique stories and educational content to promote the charitable mission of the Sustainable Development Goals. They call on experts to help with storytelling around health, education, peace, justice, conservation, and climate. And that's what we're all about here on the podcast, Rome From Home. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Rome Academy. Rome Academy is Rome's educational platform where you can connect with the greatest icons, adventurers, photographers, and filmmakers of our day. And they will teach you subjects, uh, everything from skiing and snowboarding to surfing, photography, adventure storytelling, how to achieve your dreams, fitness. It's all on there. It's the masterclass of the outdoors, if you will. So check that out. If you enjoy this podcast, that's how we stay in business is our membership with the Rome Academy. You can find us at romemedia.com. Real simple. Thanks for listening. 